Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Sunday, January the 7th, 2023. Just earlier this morning, had an interesting conversation with the professor of at a business at uh, Oxford University, uh, Colin Meyer on moral failures and capitalism and the responsibility of companies to be a little bit more moral. Um, he has a new book out, Capitalism and Crises, How to Fix Them. I think he believes we fix them by companies being a little bit more moral and responsible. He's also the author of Prosperity, Better Business Makes the the greater good. So the theme of all his work is about companies behaving themselves and recognizing their responsibility in society. That theme in some ways is continued uh, in our conversation uh, today with Dominique Shelton Leipzig, a longtime Los Angeles-based lawyer uh, with an expertise on privacy and AI. She has a new book out, Trust, Digital Strategies for uh, establishing trust, uh, uh, responsible AI, innovation, privacy, and data leadership. And um, Dominic is joining us from, Dominique is joining us from Los Angeles. Uh, Dominique, congratulations on the new book. It is like um, the theme in Colin Mayer's book. Are you suggesting that companies need to take the moral responsibility for AI, which I think most people agree, is about to profoundly reshape our world? Yes. Uh, in effect, I'm saying that companies have a huge role in being able to control AI. And in general, humans control AI, not the other way around. So we need to take responsibility. This came up in my conversation with Colin, and it's particularly relevant in terms of AI. Given that we don't know the future, that there are all sorts of warnings and assumptions and promises of AI, everything, and I'm in Silicon Valley, so you hear it every day, everything from AI is about to destroy humanity to AI is about to free us from work and make everyone rich and happy. How can we determine moral policy with AI since we really can't know how it's going to work out? Well, Andrew, you know, what's really exciting about this process is that uh, looking at the laws in our draft legislation and regulatory frameworks in 96 countries and six continents, what we see is that humans have control over this process. And we are on an AI journey, but governance and uh, all along the way, continuously testing, monitoring, and auditing our AI to make sure it's doing exactly what we expect will allow us to minimize uh, the, the headlines about AI being all wrong and maximize these wonderful outcomes that you just talked about. Dominic, is the focus of your book, the new book, Trust, is it about um, any company's use of AI or is it particularly um, focused on the responsibility of the innovators in AI from Google and OpenAI and Microsoft and Amazon and Facebook? It actually applies to any company, not just the tech companies that are 
pretty far along and advanced in these issues, but all of the companies that are licensing these large language model uh, applications for their own customized use. The idea of trust is that companies right now today can take actionable governance steps that will minimize risk and maximize the opportunity with AI. That sounds nice, but is that really possible? Yes, it is. And there's a six part uh, test that I will just lay out here for all of the listeners. So uh, what the legislative frameworks are calling for around the world is really based on the state of the technology today. And the main thing that people need to be aware of is that AI models do drift. In other words, you can have accurate data going in on day one and accurate data coming out on day one, but over time, models will drift from specific uh, specifications. It's not a set it and forget it situation. So governance and a watchful eye are really key to the success of the AI initiatives. One of the big cases on the AI front, you're a lawyer, so you're all too familiar with this, is um, the announcement a week or two ago, that the New York Times is suing OpenAI for what it claims is uh, illegal acquisition of New York Times data. Do you deal with that in, in your book in terms of what companies should and shouldn't do with their data and the responsibility of major LLMs like uh, OpenAI's chat GPT to open its black box and reveal how it's how it knows what it knows? Yeah, you know, uh, so I do deal with these issues in the book and I deal with the issues in the book because the legislative frameworks, uh, as I mentioned, in 96 countries, six continents, while they're still in draft form, do lay out a formula to help, I think, um, address and clarify these issues. What they call for is for high risk data, uh, high risk AI use cases that companies make sure that they have high quality data. And that involves an exercise of determining whether they, uh, what the use uh, for the data will be, whether the data is relevant and actually um, material for the actual use case. And part of that determination about relevance and materiality of data is looking at rights whether the companies have the requisite rights to uh, train and use uh, the data for the requisite purposes. But this uh, idea of rights checking and, um, and balancing that with fair use and so forth is complicated when you start looking at large language models in general and abstract, because uh, they will take the position, I'm sure, that they don't have a specific high risk use. It's very similar to the whole open uh, internet, which isn't focused on a particular high risk area. There are about 138 examples of high risk and they include things like healthcare uses, financial data, children, um, critical infrastructure, the power grid, et cetera. The, there are a number of examples, but about 138 for high risk use cases there is a look at IP rights. We are speaking with Dominique Shelton Leipzig, the author of an important new book on trust, written very much from a, a legal point of view, which isn't surprising given that she's a distinguished Los Angeles-based uh, lawyer. Um, Dominique, this, Dominic, this came up in some other conversations we've had this week on trust and mistrust. We, 
We seem to live in an age, for better or worse, and it's hard to know whether technology is the cause or the consequence of this, maybe both, where no one trusts anything. How does, or anyone, and yet on the other hand, we trust ourselves. We know what we think, which accounts perhaps for the profound political, cultural divisions in society. How does AI, in your view, both as a lawyer and just as a citizen, how does it play into it? How is AI and the AI revolution compounding our crisis of mistrust? And how can it help improve us trusting not just each other, but what we read on the internet and elsewhere? Well, I'm excited for the adoption of a proactive adoption of these legislative frameworks that I that are set forth to actually codify trust. Uh, they take the steps necessary uh, or outline the recipe or cookbook that companies can follow to ensure uh, there is trust in the technology. So as I said, you know, after there's a risk ranking, whether you figure out whether your AI is a high risk a low risk or a minimal risk, if it's a high risk AI, the legislation is calling for continuous testing, monitoring and auditing of that AI in the areas that are most likely to um, bring about um, basically areas of distrust. So putting guardrails in place in advance in the AI to look at questions of bias, uh, IP rights, privacy, uh, accuracy, health and safety. And if those guardrails are in the AI system itself, the company can be alerted when the AI begins to drift and goes out of those uh, designated areas. So it can go in proactively and right there on the spot, modulate and correct the model and get it back into specs. So uh, this process of governance that I just outlined is very doable by uh, so many companies. I have to admit, it doesn't sound doable to me. And in some ways, it sounds like a recipe for some sort of Kafkaesque bureaucratic nightmare where everyone's checking everything on AI. Who's Firstly, who's checking the checkers who are just as likely to be biased? Mm -hmm. uh, and secondly, aren't you creating a scenario for massive corporate and perhaps governmental bureaucracies? Well, in terms of... Uh well, let me just challenge you a little bit, Andrew. So um, we do quality control all the time on products and services. And actually there's quite a lot of testing that takes place on product testing and quality testing of uh, services involving digital tools all the time. What you're inserting in this process are the guardrails to avoid uh, harmful headlines and the uh, headlines that basically basically wear away at trust. So companies, for example, uh, if they're using AI for a, a high risk use case, let's say uh, uh, employment use case, which is considered uh, high risk, they will know, they already have parameters for what they uh, delineate as being accurate for a particular job description or um, health and safety requirements that will be necessary for a particular position. That all we're talking about is taking those existing standards and including them in the AI. Let's come up with some examples. I don't really understand why uh, employment is is high risk. And it sounds to me like you're bulking up the HR department in a company which most people, most entrepreneurs at least, 
get particularly frustrated with and see as being uh, profoundly unproductive. Uh, why, why is employment high risk? Well, uh, the general, where these high risk categories come from are in the draft legislation itself. So in the EU AI Act, which is, uh, we don't have the final text yet, but they describe the types of things that will be considered high risk and employment use cases are one of them. Yeah, and this was something that was announced in December of, of, of last year, so last month. Yes, on um, December 8th, it was announced that there was a decision, a political agreement was reached to move forward with a final EU AI Act. From the prior drafts of the EU AI Act, we can see, uh, and looking at the other legislation that it, it uh, calls out to, as well as some of the regulatory uh, work that's been done in the US uh, from the White House and the White House uh, yeah, EU, I mean, the White House um, executive order uh, on AI, we can see in our, we have draft legislation about 149 bills that are pending in state and federal legislatures. Uh, they all define employment use cases as high risk. And as a matter of fact, uh, Andrew, in uh, New York, for example, New York uh, municipal law already has uh, employment use cases as a matter of yeah, law. These are just words, high risk. Explain why it's high risk. Is it because you might employ the wrong person? Is it because some someone might claim to have done something or have something on a resume that they don't they haven't really accomplished? Why is this high risk? Yeah, so um, the the categories of high risk are broadly defined as those things that will could have a, um, a harmful impact on humans, both either emotionally or physically. So uh, you can imagine, Andrew, if someone thinks they are uh, up, uh, qualified for a job or needs a job or a promotion or an income for their livelihood, and they don't get it because there was uh, a decision that they question about as far as AI is concerned, that that is one which would be considered high risk. So that is how the, the legislators got to that. And it's this general idea of anything that could cause. Uh, so, okay, so let, let's think that one through because it's interesting. So someone applies to a company for a job, the algorithm, what makes a mistake on in terms of whether or not they're qualified for the job, maybe discriminates against them in one form or another. Mm -hmm. Are you, what are you telling companies that they need to be more careful with their algorithms, that they need to be more transparent? Uh, well, that's part, transparency and carefulness um, really come through the governance steps. So what a company would do if they were looking for, say, um, you know, resumes for a particular job, they're going to want to put in as a guardrail what the qualifications are um, and what are the, the specifications are for that position. And that will be translated by the data scientists into actual mathematical uh parameters so that if resumes are coming in that don't meet the qualifications, the company can be alerted and you also protect the brand proactively so that they're not accused of uh, necessarily uh, things that may not be. But humans used to do that. Humans used to judge CVs. So so what, what are you saying? It's more or less trustworthy to have an AI to do this? Uh, it's perhaps can be more trustworthy to have the AI if we apply the human guardrails. When a human is reviewing an AI, I mean, if a human is reviewing a resume, they know the criteria and they're uh, applying it and they have a, a written 
usually job description that they're looking at and to see if the uh, candidate fits it. What you want to do is give the same uh, guidance to the AI. And that's all this is talking about, Andrew, is really taking the existing guidance that exists. Let's just take a healthcare example. Um, you know, uh, you're developing a drug development. Companies that are developing drugs have guardrails for, you know, when they're developing a drug for pancreatic cancer to make sure that it's not a drug for liver treatment. All we're saying is give the AI the benefit of that same guardrail so that uh, what comes out of the AI is exactly what the company expects, which is an amazing result that can accelerate at scale. So that is the state of the technology. It's, it, it, it's not a set it and forget it and just uh, let it all go because even our research scientists, our large language model experts tell us models drift, even if they start accurately on day one, uh, at any point in time, they can veer and become inaccurate. And the company wouldn't have no idea about that. No, it's, uh, that's the, unless they're that's the theme of a lot of science fiction uh, films, of course, science fiction literature. Uh, Dominique, the, the, the unfortunately recently departed uh, historian anthropologist David Graeber wrote a book about what he called bullshit jobs and the rise of bullshit jobs. It sounds to me as if and I'm not blaming you for this, but in your vision of a corporate future, there are gonna be a lot of bullshit jobs in which humans are checking the AI. It's, it, leaving aside the bullshit, is that what the jobs are gonna be for humans? Checking on whether or not the AI is screwing up? Actually, Andrew, the good news is this can be done by code. So uh, what we're talking about is inserting the parameters for what is accurate, what is um, safe in the AI, inserting that code numerically into the AI tool itself. And so the AI has a range within which that the company is set for safety, uh, privacy, cyber risks. And if the AI veers outside of those parameters, then yes, a human would check the technical, basically the technical documentation, the metadata and the logging data and come back in and fix the model and get the model back uh, on track to what was the original. Dominic, I don't, I, Dominic, I don't know if you've, been, if you've got any kids. I've got a couple. Would you want your kids doing this job? You know, it's. Uh, I think it's going to be the data scientists. First of all, let me just back up. Uh, there are data scientists and numerous companies already doing this job. Continuous testing, monitoring and auditing is not new. It has existed uh, for decades. And what we're saying is when we're deploying generative AI at scale, uh, what the uh, legal frameworks are saying is we need to apply that same good standards that we've been using for other models, just adopt it in the generative AI context. That's all. We're speaking with Dominique Shelton Leipzig, one of America's leading legal experts on AI and trust. She has a new book out called Appropriate Enough Trust. For real trust, I would strongly suggest you read Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics. There's no AI in it. It's all humans, and it's a lovely product. I'm going to run a short feature. And then we'll be back with Dominic um, uh, to talk more about AI and trust. I want to talk specifically about the European initiatives and when it comes to bias in AI and what we're supposed to do with it. So don't go away, anyone. We're all watching you. We've got AI out here. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. 
Liberty's it's not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberty's is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. Do it yourself. Don't rely on the AI because if you do, who knows how it will turn out. We're speaking with Dominique Shelton Leipzig, uh, the Los Angeles-based author of an interesting new book, uh, Trust on Digital Strategies for Establishing Trust, particularly within corporations, uh, Dominic, in the first part, you touched on the EU. Um, I'm about to go to DLD uh, this week in Munich, which uh, is Europe's leading tech event. Lots of my old friends will be there, including Gary Marcus. Um, are the Europeans taking the lead when it comes to regulating um, AI? And what can Americans learn from the European initiative? Yeah, so uh, Europe is taking the lead. They are the first jurisdiction to come out with a basically full purpose uh, omnibus uh, piece of legislation uh, to address AI, all kinds of AI, including generative AI. So uh, they're taking the lead and I think they will influence what happens around the world. Margaret Vestager, who I know quite well, I interviewed her for my last book. She's uh, she will be uh, in the U.S. talking to um, a lot of the leading uh, tech companies, the CEO of tech companies. The critique of the EU and European tech in Silicon Valley, at least, is all Europeans know how to do is regulate. They don't innovate. Is there some truth there? I mean, you're a, a lawyer rather than a, an entrepreneur, but the fact that the Europeans are so good at saying no, but don't innovate themselves, is that troubling to you? Look, innovation is the key here. And what's exciting to me is that uh, this is one of those areas where it's not um, a sort of us versus them, innovation versus legislation. It's really an opportunity where uh, I'm arguing the company should proactively adopt these uh, steps because it will help them identify um, uh, any issues with their products so that they can ensure that their AI is amazing and it's doing exactly what they expect it to do. So this is really going to unlock innovation because you're preventing the kind of um, headlines or missteps that are uh, mostly avoidable uh, just by uh, having this continuous testing, monitoring and auditing in place. So you're saying that it might actually spark a, a innovation, not just in Europe, but in the US. And if the US wants to maintain its innovative lead in AI, perhaps with China, that it needs to regulate. Is that your argument? Well, I, I think that uh, companies should not be tethered to the regulation. There are some very good ideas and um, I would say basically a cookbook for how companies can build their AI today to make sure that it is amazing tomorrow. And that involves a realization that models do drift. And in order to be aware of when that happens and to correct the model so that there are no harms or hits to the brand, the best way to do that is to insert the continuous testing, monitoring and auditing and stay right on top of it and make sure that the AI is amazing doing exactly what you want it to do. 
you say models do drift that word drift sounds a euphemism to me does that mean that does is drift another word for getting hijacked being hacked I mean, what do you mean exactly by drift drift means that uh models the the way that the technology is today our large language model experts and research scientists say that models do even when they're accurate accurate data going in and accurate data coming out initially that over time there's a process called um, degradation that occurs where accuracy can uh, can shift and so that's where when you read headlines about uh, misidentification of people or um, inaccurate answers or hallucinations, all that is is the very normal process of uh, AI models drifting. So in order to use the technology effectively, the, the thing for companies to do is be aware that models drift. It's not a set it and forget it like a cloud and you don't need to come back to it. Because models are dynamic and shift, it's important for companies to uh, dynamically test and monitor and audit to make sure that the shifting is going exactly in the direction that the company has set and it's not going past the guardrails that the company has put in place. So it's a dynamic technology and that's what's exciting about it and leads to so much innovation. The humans drift, Dominique? I'm like, there's something wrong and I'm <laughs> making an excuse with my um, life. Can I say, well, you know, I drifted and now I'm back on the guardrails? Well, you know, humans, I, I, we, we might have the capacity to drift, but then we have all kinds of checks and balances. Uh, if you start uh, putting out inaccurate information, there's going to be, I imagine your, um, you know, your audience and others will come forward and, and, and look for correction. And this is the same yeah, thing. Yeah, my wife just gave me a dirty look. So uh, exactly. she's going to make sure she's my, she's my insurance against drifting. She'll probably do um, that in her language. You argue in the book that data accountability now is one of the CEO's responsibilities. Are you suggesting in the book that any CEO of, of any company, Reid Hoffman, of course, many year, years ago famously argued, and he was right on this front, that every company now, for better or worse, like it or not, is a tech company. Yeah. Do all CEOs of any company, uh, Dominic, do they need to understand this and have what you call data accountability? Yes. You know, I couldn't agree more with Reed. Every company is a data company today. And CEOs and board members, even if they don't have technical back backgrounds, really need to treat it as their most important asset and uh, learn how to lead in this area. And that's what the book is for, is really to provide that roadmap for our non-technical leaders so that they can uh, lead in this area and be able to guide the governance uh, of the organization to a culture of trustworthy technology. So it's not enough just to have a, a chief AI officer or a chief trust officer or a, a chief uh, digital legal officer. The, the, the CEO of the company, where the, the buck stops, and of course with boards, you write about boards too, they all need to become data literate and understand their responsibility and accountability when it comes to AI. Is that fair? 
Yeah, absolutely, Andrew. You know, look, whenever there is an issue, unfortunately, we had uh, cyber attacks last year that accounted for $6.1 trillion in losses. That's with a T. So uh, if uh, cyber attacks had been a country, it would be the third largest GDP in the world behind the U.S. and China. But whenever you see those uh, accountability hearings in Congress or elsewhere in other legislative formats, uh, it's never uh, the, unfortunately, you know, the CISO alone or the general counsel, it's the CEO, right? It's the board that is being called to task to answer for whatever has occurred. What I think is great is if we can have our CEO and board community embracing and understanding the governance journey so that uh, just a few questions can help build that culture of trust. Things we talked about here today, uh, asking in the environment, has the AI that's being used in the company been risk ranked? Do we have any high risk use cases in the company? Uh, where, where do we stand with continuous testing, monitoring, and auditing? These are the those are the ways that you can catch any mishaps way ahead of time, and those are the types of questions our CEO and board community need to be asking. Final question, um, Dominique. I know your book you focus also on algorithmic bias and the accountability and responsibility of CEOs. You don't need me to tell you that we live in an age of not just mistrust but an acute sensitivity about whether or not bias should even exist and how to deal with bias. The, the latest cases at Harvard and uh, MIT have suggested that diversity, equity, and inclusion is in itself a, uh, a mistake or a, a problem. With all this new AI, is this only going to compound all the controversies over DEI? Might it be the final nail in the coffin of DEI, or might it actually mark the beginnings of a perhaps a fairer and more transparent age of DEI? I'm excited because I think that technology and AI can actually enhance an inclusive and um, fair and thoughtful society, which is I think where, where everybody wants to get to. Uh, so I'm excited about the opportunities here. What the draft legislation lays out is the opportunity for each organization itself to make the determination of their own guardrails. What does bias mean for drug development versus what does it mean for an HR use case or what it means to find rocket scientists for the latest, um, you know, high-tech company. These are all questions that the companies need to ask themselves and look to their own DNA and then be able to insert those parameters inside the AI tool itself. Well, Dominic Shelton Leipzig, the author of Trust. I tried to get you to drift, but you haven't. Maybe that's the uh, secret source of top lawyers like you. Maybe you, instead of you can replace the Shelton with Dominic, no drift Leipzig. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Andrew, for having me. I really enjoyed being here today.